What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Armies traditionally resist fighting in cities. It's just harder and more dangerous than fighting in open areas. But as the world has urbanized, war has too. And fighting forces are building up tactics for built-up areas. And as our listeners and readers know, here at The Economist, we're very serious about grammar. Even so, we would never say these spaghetti are delicious, even though spaghetti is a plural noun. But when it comes to other plural nouns, we're slowly changing our ways. First up, though. In Britain, New Zealand, Canada, and many other rich countries, buying a dream home, or even a first home, has become much more difficult over the past decade. Have you seen many in this price range at all? About? Uh, not yet. No, there's not much out there. No. Every time I see a house and a phone up, it's already been sold by the time. I don't even get to view it. Oceans of cheap money created by central banks to support economies after the 2008 financial crisis, and then to stave off a pandemic bust have poured into many assets, including real estate. That and a switch in taste from packed city dwelling to more space and country living has sent house prices in many places soaring. But data last week showed new home sales in the U.S. falling 12.6% month-on-month in July, and mortgage applications 21% lower than they were a year ago. More data on house prices is due out today. But America is not the only place where housing markets now look distinctly wobbly. Home sales took off during the pandemic as remote work opened up cheaper housing options for city dwellers. Vingera Makandawire is a global property correspondent. So this sent prices to record highs in many rich countries, particularly places that offered larger gardens or more green space. And so in France, Parisians fled to the French countryside, Turkish residents left Istanbul for resort towns, and Londoners flocked to leafy neighborhoods like Richmond and Dulwich, or escaped the city altogether for cheaper homes. In America, where Californians and New Yorkers moved to mountain towns and sunbelt states, house prices at the start of this year had soared by nearly a fifth compared with the start of the pandemic. In New Zealand, valuations at the end of 2021 were up 45% from the pre-pandemic level. While the types of houses we own might have changed, the desire for Kiwis to have security of a safe, warm, dry and affordable home remains unchanged. That is the government's goal too. And in Canada, they rose by half. There's a recognition that as families look to get into the housing market right now, it's getting more and more difficult. And even as families save up uh, and work hard, uh, 
every passing year seems to get housing further and further away from them. And that's prompting the leaders in both countries to try to dampen down those increases. But now, as interest rates rise, the global housing boom is running out of steam. What's the evidence for that and where is it happening? House prices are already falling in the frothiest markets. Canadian homes could lose a quarter of their value by the end of next year. And in New Zealand, prices have dropped for five consecutive months. In Sweden, house prices in June fell by the steepest monthly amount since the financial crisis. And in Australia, two in five homes are worth less than they were three months ago. The cracks are also starting to appear in the pandemic hotspots that became really popular with buyers during lockdowns. In Salt Lake City, Utah, for example, more than half of homes for sale had their price cut in June. In Boise, Idaho, three-fifths did. And even in countries where prices are still rising, the markets are cooling. In America, demand for mortgages has dropped to a 22-year low. And in Britain, mortgage approvals in April fell back to pre-pandemic levels. Why is all of this a concern, and does it affect all rich countries similarly? So some countries are more vulnerable to rising mortgage rates than others. Nordic markets, such as Norway and Sweden, look particularly exposed to us. They stand out for their relatively high shares of mortgage holders compared with outright owners and the prevalence of variable rate mortgages instead of fixed rate loans. In addition to that, they have relatively high levels of household mortgage debt, as do Australia and Canada. Homeowners in New Zealand are also at risk. Although fixed-rate mortgages make up the bulk of existing loans in the country, nearly three-fifths are fixed for less than a year. Most loans are at fixed rates in Britain, but almost half of those rates are fixed for no more than two years. So once borrowers' current terms expire, monthly payments will jump. So let's talk about the price falls in houses. What's the magnitude there, and, and do you worry that we're heading into a deep housing slump? Analysts at Capital Economics are forecasting relatively modest drops of between 5% and 10% in America and Britain. In Australia and Sweden, they reckon prices could slip by 15%, whereas in Canada and New Zealand, prices could fall by 20%. But so far, housing shortages in many countries mean that property is still selling fairly quickly. Depending on the estimate, America is short of either 3.8 million or 5.8 million homes. England needs an estimated 345,000 new homes a year, but it's building half that amount. And Canada, at the current pace of construction, would require an additional 3.5 million homes by 2030. And presumably jobs are also a factor in what happens next to house prices, right? Yes, so far that's been the case. Tight labor markets and low unemployment in many rich countries means people are less likely to fall behind on their debts. You combine this with stronger household finances and also the fact that lenders have become much more cautious since the last global downturn. And all of this should theoretically prevent a slump on the scale of the financial crisis in all but the wobbliest markets. And in some places, prices may not decline all that much, or even at all, but there are still big risks. Such as what? Well, if inflation sticks and the economy weakens even further, unemployment could rise and housing sentiment would shift much more substantially in this scenario. 
Take Canada, where the outlook already appears quite gloomy. If forecasts by the Royal Bank of Canada become a reality and sales plummet by more than 40% from their peak in 2021, that would make the crash in Canada even more severe than in the financial crisis when they fell by 38%. And that's an outcome that many countries would want to avoid. That said, housing market forecasts are a bit of a mugs game because the last two years have been so out of whack. You had record prices around the world. You had the bidding wars. No one really anticipated the extent of the pandemic housing boom. So that experience makes it much more difficult to forecast where housing markets will ultimately land. So Vincero, given all these factors that we've talked about, where do you think things are heading? At its last monetary policy meeting, the U.S. Federal Reserve indicated interest rates would continue to rise, and the Bank of England predicted even higher-than-expected inflation and a recession later this year that could last into early 2024. So whether it's policy tightening or falling growth, the outlook looks uncertain for housing right now. All right, Vingero, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, John. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys' club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. On Monday, Ukraine's army announced that a much-anticipated counteroffensive had begun, aiming to retake the south of the country. The principal goal is to liberate the city of Kherson, the only regional capital captured by Russia in the six months of its invasion. Ukrainian forces are reported to be about 30 miles away from the city. President Volodymyr Zelensky said if Russian forces want to survive, it's time for them to run away. Go home, he said. But while Ukraine may have broken through Russia's first lines of defense in the region, far harder battles will come in the city of Kherson itself. Urban combat has a brutal, destructive reputation, and Russian forces have had months to prepare their defenses in the city. For a very long time, if you asked a general whether he wanted to send his army into a city, he would have said, absolutely not. Shashank Joshi is The Economist's defense editor. Armies hated fighting in built-up areas. It was a mess. They would avoid it unless absolutely necessary. What we're seeing more recently is that armies are realizing they might not have a choice, that they might have to get ready for a future in which urban warfare is more common, is unavoidable, and in which their armies will have to be optimized for it in some cases. Why is that, though? Why have armies hated built-up areas? I think for lots of reasons. First of all, built-up areas offer lots of places to hide, Firefights can occur very suddenly. They can occur at very close range. Buildings can be absolutely laced with mines and booby traps. 
that need to be constantly alert can fray soldiers' nerves. And it can be incredibly destructive, right? Look at the example of Mariupol, the city on the Sea of Azov in southern Ukraine that was besieged by Russia, then taken by Russia, and had over 1,000 of its high-rise buildings destroyed, almost half of its built-up areas very badly damaged. Its pre-war population of 400,000 had shrunk by more than 75%. You know, cities often tend not to survive urban warfare. So why do armies feel differently about it now then? I think in part because there are so many recent examples of it, they're realizing that they're going to have to do it, right? If you look at recent conflicts, a lot of them have really turned on battles over cities. For example, the battle for Shusha, the town in the disputed territory of Nagorno-Karabakh, was the decisive engagement of the war between Armenia and Azerbaijan in 2020. I've mentioned Mariupol already, but there are so many other examples from Ukraine. But I think there are also demographic trends here, John. More people live in cities than they used to, and those cities are becoming bigger. So if you look at some of the big potential flashpoints in the world, you know, just to take an example, look at Taiwan. That's an incredibly urban society. 80% of Taiwanese live in towns and cities. Taipei is a huge city. So if the People's Liberation Army of China wants to conquer Taiwan, it has no choice but to engage in urban warfare. That's just a fact. So how are armies changing their tactics, training, operations to meet this new challenge? It's partly that they're beginning to think about these issues, that military leaders are sensitizing their their forces to this stuff. They're also training for this stuff. I looked at the example of a recent exercise in Leeds, which is a city in northern England, where the British army was slogging its way through these tunnels in knee-deep water, low-light, sweltering conditions, And this is stuff they had not done, one of them told me, since the Korean War in some cases, on a really big scale. They found all kinds of stuff that they didn't realize. For example, night vision goggles need ambient light, and you don't have ambient light when you're deep underground. They found that if you disturb stagnant water in these tunnels, you can release toxic gases, which are really bad for soldiers. These are logistical things you don't realize until you're in these tunnels they found that a lot of the equipment that was most useful was not the fancy modern stuff. It was kind of breathing kit they had been given by the fire brigade that dated from the 1960s. This is stuff that if you haven't done it since Korea and you've spent most of your time fighting very different kinds of war, you're going to only learn it by doing it. And what about on the ground, though? What if you're a soldier? What's your day-to-day life like when it's fighting in cities rather than in open areas? So first of all, it's really manpower intensive. Like a single building can consume a whole battalion of troops, you know, like a thousand troops in a day's fighting. So it's incredibly manpower intensive. But you can also use the urban infrastructure in in quite clever ways. If you look at the defense of Kiev, for example, um, it was only a single Ukrainian brigade that repelled a a much superior Russian force, but they were able to, to selectively flood particular areas north of the city by manipulating dams, which really made entire areas impossible for the Russian invaders. That was an example of using urban infrastructure to your advantage. But I think the single biggest difference between fighting in a city versus fighting anywhere else, if you're a soldier on the ground, is the fact that there are civilians around. Fighting in woods, fighting in jungles, all of that is really hard as well. But you don't have large numbers of non-combatants sitting all around you uh, and, and you know, creating a trade-off that do you just launch huge amounts of firepower at the place from far away, like the Russians have done in Ukraine, and destroy the place and potentially kill large numbers of civilians, but you save many of your own troops? Or do you go in 
and potentially lose lots of your own people in a kind of house-to-house slog. And I think that that presence of civilians is really the challenge for soldiers in this area. So this is not a preference, it's an inevitability then. This is the war of the future. Armies are beginning to think it is. I thought it was really interesting to see the British army in recent months spell out some of the hypotheses they have about what a future war in Europe is going to look like. And one of them is that it's going to be very urban. Because if you're an army moving in open areas between towns and cities, you're going to be spotted by the new generation of satellites, drones, radars, all of these surveillance and reconnaissance techniques that armies and, and militaries have today that are incredibly effective um, and that we've, I think, talked about on this on this show in the past. And the argument is that cities, for the reasons I've mentioned, right, because you have buildings, you have tunnels, you have uh, places where, where, where signals are blocked, where, uh, you know, you, you can't see into all of these areas, cities might become really interesting sanctuaries from this persistent, relentless reconnaissance. And if that's the case, you could end up with this idea of the urban citadel. And the British Army talks about using cities as places where you might hunker down, you might you might hide, you might take refuge, and then launch counterattacks from those places. And that, I think, is a fascinating reversal of the old conventional wisdom that you never want to fight in cities. You stay out of cities. They're nothing but trouble. They'll absorb your army. We may be seeing the beginning of thinking that says, you know what? Actually, we may have to fight in cities. We may have no choice. I wonder if it may be an opportunity, actually, to turn our adversaries' technological advantages against them. Thanks, as ever, for joining us, Shashank. Thank you very much, Jason. Not long ago, The Economist marked a change. This reform involves one of the most curiously polarizing issues a word ending in English has ever generated. There's been a long-running debate about whether the word data is singular or plural. Lane Green writes The Economist's Johnson column about language. Although it may not be obvious, data is originally a plural word in Latin. The Latin word for things that are given, a datum, is the singular, and data is the Latin plural. And so for a long time, the prevailing usage in English was things like the data show or the data indicate. But today, it's commonly used with a singular verb. So people uh, have been saying more and more the data says, the data indicates and so on. At The Economist, we stuck with the plural form until quite recently. But at times, that sounds slightly odd. For example, when talking about data in computing and technology context, when we talk about all of the data that Facebook has on its servers, it seems more like a mass. And so people are more inclined to say the data is. And The Economist is now changing with those times. So Lane, tell us about these changes. Well, when the data are still representing what we might conceive of as individual pieces of information. For example, if you have weather satellites or weather stations sending you different temperature and barometric pressure readings from around the world, you can almost still see a column of numbers in your mind. And in those cases, we'll still use the plural to say the data show that this has been the hottest summer uh, since so-and-so. 
But when considered as a concept, when we're talking about data as an idea, we'll now allow that kind of thing. So we will be able to say things like data is now more important than physical inventory, for example. And we'll also use it in the singular when the data is considered as a mass. You might think about the data your mobile phone plan includes. And if it runs out three weeks into the month, you'll say, oh, my data has run out. You won't typically say that my data have run out unless you're a very keen classicist or someone who's very old fashioned on this. So take a step back for a minute. When did both the plural and singular forms start appearing in literature? And when did the singular start to predominate? When the singular first appears, we're talking about the 17th century when lots of Latin and Greek words were being coined in English. And so originally, the plural sense came over from Latin into English. These were the days when people still wrote habitually in Latin. So everyone was educated in Latin if they were educated at all. But already at the beginning of the 18th century, in 1702, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, comes the first appearance of singular data. And this was in an astronomy textbook, so exactly that kind of scientific and learned context where we might expect our sort of classically educated astronomer to use the plural. This is only about 60 years after plural data had first shown up. So we really have singular data going almost back to the beginning of the word in English. That being said, I think plural data predominated for a long time. But you can now look at a tool called Google Books' Ngram Viewer. It allows you to see basically millions and millions of books and how frequent certain words are. And you can see that the word in its plural form has started to decline relative to the singular. So it's probably overtaken by now, including in published books and most certainly on the internet. And I think that's because the rise of computing has really changed the balance. While an 18th century scholar's data might indeed just be a couple of numbers on a single page, today computers easily manage billions of bytes of data. So we start to get that sense of molecules of water in the ocean rather than individual things that you can see with the naked eye. And so as a result, people just conceive of data as singular more often. And I think as computing just invades absolutely everything, we'll see the continuing rise and rise of the singular. What prompted us to make this change? Well, there's two things. One is generational. Many of our younger readers and younger writers and staff members have been essentially complaining about the old policy, saying that it's increasingly strange to use the plural relentlessly, no matter the context. And the other is that changing balance of contexts. We're talking about computer data in this mass form a lot more often, and we're talking about those individual data points relatively less. So, Lane, are there opponents to this change, both in the world and, and in-house here at The Economist? Yes, we got a few cancel my subscription tweets, I think mostly in jest. The argument is a grammatical one, that because data was traditionally plural and it is a Latin plural, that it has to stay that way. But there are many cases where when a word is borrowed into English, it changes its grammatical form in one way or another. Agenda and stamina were Latin plurals that are now English singulars. Insignia, trivia, other words. You can look to other languages like when we took spaghetti and lasagna with an E on the end from Italian. Those are Italian plurals and we use them as singulars in English. And of course, in-house, we have editors who have been using writing and making others write plural data all their careers. And there's a little bit of opposition there. One of our editors wrote to me in response to the announcement to say, things fall apart, the center cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. I think he too meant that a bit in jest, and I would take a bet that we will not loose mere anarchy on the world or on our pages. I think this is a widely accepted change that won't cause too much chaos. All right, so data is singular as well as plural. These are great news. Thanks for joining us, Lane. 
<laughs> Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem, where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist.